Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole Nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, I'm Cole. Thanks for tuning in. I am excited today to be joined by Dr. Stephen Frankenary. Steve, welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Thank you, Cole. Great to be here. Steve's professor of psychology at Northwestern University with courtesy appointments in the Kellogg School of Management and Design in the McCormick School of Engineering. He's also director of the Visual Thinking Lab, where they conduct research on data visualization, among other things, which we'll talk about. Steve, when I was prepping for today, I was thinking back to when you and I first met. I'll set the stage. It was early 2017. I was in Chicago for a workshop and you invited me up to Evanston where Northwestern is to do a guest lecture for your undergrad psych course. And as I was reflecting back on this, I was realizing for some reason I associate this memory with cats and I couldn't for the life of me remember why. Do you remember why I'm thinking of cats? Cats? I'm not sure. The only thing I can think of that's related to that class is a lot of the time when I, 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 tell them not to use legends in their visualizations. I put up a particular meme, a particular little YouTube. It used to be a Vine, uh, but let's call it a TikTok now, of kittens watching ping pong. So I have them imagine that they're making their audience look like those kittens watching back and forth. I have a particular little video that I use for this, and it, it does work as a mnemonic. So five years later, I've had people write back to me and say, I saw the kittens again. So that's my best guess, at least. It was a pop quiz that maybe was inspired by the kitten video, but you gave your students a pop quiz that day. And I actually here I copied this down, hunted for it. The final uh, question in your pop quiz was the most fun and intellectually stimulating thing that could possibly happen today would be A, Professor Frankenary yammers about information theory in the brain, B, cat videos, C, dance party, cat videos in the background, or D, Cole Nussbaumer Naflick busts in and holds an exciting and informative workshop for the class. I think, did you, you probably scared them with that quiz, right? Yeah. In the end, the answer wound up being D. So in yeah. the undergrad class that I run here at Northwestern, we teach the students how to give good presentations and how to show data well and how to pitch their ideas to prepare them to be consultants or lawyers or whatever they're going to wind up being in the world. And in that course, we actually use uh, Cole's book. And every meeting of the course, we'd have a pop quiz. And uh, to make sure that people did the reading for that particular week, we had an increasingly ludicrous pop quiz with just random questions about like, where did Cole go to college? And we could see the students' eyes drooping and me getting funny looks. And then by the end, when they were just getting super angry and hands started to be raised, Cole popped out from the back and led a fantastic workshop. And we had a blast. It was super fun. I think it gives us some insight into some of your teaching style. Also, I remember one thing that stuck out of me from being at Northwestern that first time was I got a tour of the visual thinking lab and saw some of the really cool technology that you have there, which I want to talk more about. But before we do that, let's set some context for those who are watching and listening. Steve, can you tell us a bit about your background and what led you to what you focus on today? Sure. When I was an undergraduate, I got infatuated with cognitive science, this idea of studying minds and brains, and particularly studying the visual system. It's a huge part of your brain. It's incredibly powerful. And there's also a lot known about it. 
And it's a great place to play in cognitive science. And when I was in graduate school, I primarily worked on figuring out the power and limits of the visual system. Many of you might be familiar with that video where you're watching a bunch of basketball players and then a gorilla walks through the, the scene and many people don't even notice it. That was the kind of work that my lab was doing when I came in. That's actually one of my office mates is basketball player number three. So a lot of real world visual power and limits. And then as I became a faculty member, uh, especially over the last 10 years or so, we've started to do work that's a lot more real world relevant. So we've moved on to power and limits of the visual system and data visualization. How do you set up a good visualization that lets you do analytics and find patterns? And how do you set up a communicative visualization that conveys patterns to other people quickly? And then other types of visual thinking, like how do you get a, an organic chemistry student to visualize and rotate that complicated molecule in ways that respect their limits and, and, but also harness the power of the visual system. It's mostly like translationally relevant work in visual, they call visual cognition, just fancy academic word for visual thinking. Yeah. And maybe that's a good parlay to dive a little deeper into the visual thinking lab. When did it start? Have you been there from the beginning? Been there for something like 15, 16 years now, 2006. So that would be some quick math. But yeah, so I've been a professor at Northwestern since leaving my postdoc, I came straight here and I've had that lab for 15 years now in the, in the same, in the psych building. That's amazing. And who gets involved? It's uh, typically a couple of postdoctoral researchers, maybe two or three grad students, and then a large group of undergraduates. And we often typically have a lab manager and we have plenty of people that come visit the lab to run experiments, response time experiments, accuracy experiments, interview experiments. And then, of course, in the last few years, we've increasingly relied on data from crowd workers, uh, prolific mechanical Turk, et cetera, so that we can put studies out there on the internet and have larger numbers of people participate, which has also helped expand our sample a bit beyond just college students. It's a pretty good crowd. And that's one thing I want to talk about when we get into things a little bit more, some of the limitations and how we make sure studies are robust. We'll get into some of that with some of the specific studies, I think. Can you talk a little bit more about those who aren't familiar with Mechanical Turk, about how that is helping research? Yeah. So there are these platforms now where if you have some free time, you can go and do experiments for uh, psychology or you can help code data or there's all these either anything from one minute tasks up to two hour tasks. I think that Amazon was the first organization to offer this and they originally pitched it as artificial, artificial intelligence. That was their gag. So it's like things that you'd wish that an AI could do, but you actually need people to help on. And so they were more like data coding tasks, labeling images, et cetera. But that community of crowd workers in general has expanded to include not just these sorts of short-term tasks, but running experiments and doing product interviews, et cetera. So we often will use those populations to find folks to run in our experiments. Can you talk a bit about some of the technology that you have at the lab? I remember some of the like brain mapping, eye tracking, cool stuff. We had some cool toys. Uh, so you first walk into the lab, it'll look like an office. We have some high-tech cubicles, of course, some computers. But then in the back room where we run participants, we have a couple of eye trackers. Uh, one of them that's like a chin mounted eye tracker and a camera and another one that's uh, head mounted. And these allow us to figure out where you're looking and when. I, I know, Cole, when you run your workshops, you often say, where does your eye go? And so this is the device we can use to actually measure that. And it's very high precision. Actually, we used to do more lower level perceptual work in vision. And so we really needed something that would know where you're looking exactly 
and, and it would know your eye position every millisecond. And nowadays we're more interested in, as you look at this graph bigly, which bar are you looking at or this heat map, which area are you looking at over time? So we have that gear. And then we also work on where your attention goes, even when your eyes are static. So for that, we have an electrophysiology uh, rig. So this is just, if you go to the hospital and you, you just, sometimes they'll uh, put a couple of electrodes on your brain and they'll just check your brain waves in general. This is a, a more a denser version of that where there's tons of electrodes that go over your head. And that one we use to see where your attention's moving even when your eye is static. So if you keep your eye at the, at the middle of a screen, if you pay attention to this side, because most of this visual world tends to go to only this side of your head, but it goes diagonally and vice versa, we can actually read the electrodes on the back of your head and tell whether you're paying more attention on the left, right. So for some of the geekier psych level experiments, we really want to dig under the hood and find out what's going on. We've used that technique, but I think for most practical purposes, the eye tracker gets that done because in general, people put their eyes around. And, and, and are paying attention to what they're looking at. Right? Exactly. They, you don't yeah. tend to secretly look at this section of a screen. You just move your eyes there. But we needed to know that you're still doing it even when you couldn't move your eyes for geeky reasons for a long time. Sure. Yeah. So in this space and with all of the aforementioned cool technology, how do you decide, right? There's so many things you could research and look into. How do you decide which projects to actually take on? For that one, we go for projects that these days that are really going to end up having practical relevance and, and also are, are good projects that will feed back to our knowledge of how the visual system works in general. Uh, the data visualization, I, I got into it because there were a bunch of problems that were unsolved. I, I initially got involved in that world because I had contacted a professor at uh, Wisconsin-Madison who was trying to figure out a visual comparison could be better set up for pictures on your phone's camera roll. So you, know, you take a picture of a bunch of people and you have six Six pictures in the, one photo, I've got my eyes closed. Another one, it's usually me. I'm, I'm making a goofy face and you want to find out which one is best. And now you're playing find the difference. And so how do you set up those kinds of displays uh, to be able to facilitate visual comparison? It, it was my attraction to the, not only the cool cognitive questions that that raises, how, what, what are you good at in your visual system? What are your limitations? But also the potential to really have an impact where you could design a display that would allow those systems to work better for and that's been my experience throughout working in data visualization is that there's so many cool problems that are going to inspire the basic research side, but also you can have immediate impact by running those studies. So you said you preference practical. How do you measure the practicality or how do you, there's, there's a leap that happens there. I'm it's, curious. Yeah. It's, and it's a leap that doesn't often happen in science and research in general. People sort of assume what folks in the real world need. And really it's through my teaching and interaction with practitioners and data visualization that has let me see on the ground what is practically important for people. So if I go to a conference and there, there's folks from the real world that work on data visualizations there, or folks from companies where they've got a researcher. I like that how you talk there. about the real world as if there's distance between <laughs> the sphere in which you live. There and... often is. Yeah, there often yeah. is in academia and in, in the research world, there can be a little bit of a, of a wall there where people don't all, often reach out because the purpose of the, these fields is to generalize as much as possible and come up with theories that explain what humans are good at and what they're not across many, many domains. And that and then it gets hard to actually interact with people in those many, many domains. And right. one solution is to at least pick one and have that context or pick two or three. And for me, those areas are data visualization practitioners and people that present information, and then also a bit on the education side. So things like 
trying to get that student in that chemistry class to recognize that molecule or that kid in the second grade classroom to understand what a bar graph is and how it works. Those are the, the contexts that inspire our lab's research. And how do you measure success? So you do a study, you publish a paper. What are the sort of metrics that you're looking at across the lab and then also for individual research projects? I want to be able to show it, to teach it in the classroom. I want to be able to, for the, at the moment, especially for the data visualization work, I want to be able to give five minutes of background on how the brain works and then suggest that because it works this way, then the following design should work best. And then I want to be able to show it and say, doesn't that feel good? And you know what? We actually know it works well. It's not just your intuition. We actually put it in front of 50 people. 25 got this version, 25 got our good new version. And look at this, these 25 that got the new version did that real world task a lot better. So having that inspiration of what do people do with graphs in the real world? What are the problems? Which ones would be interesting and, and relevant if we solve them? That helps keep us doing really practical work. And you and I have had those conversations many times, it feels yeah, like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I remember it being surprising and even with the declutter and focus study that we'll talk a little bit more about in a bit, that that was even something that needed researched or that should be published because it seemed like common sense to, to some yeah. people, yeah. but yeah. hadn't yeah. actually been looked into in that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, just as one example, we had a study a few years ago. This was run by one of our PhD students, uh, Christy, where we had noticed that when people make visualizations or dashboards, they'll often have a bar graph where you've got, here's how this company did in December last year, and then this year, and then in, in January last year, and then this year. So they have a bunch of little bars next to each other. And what we knew from the, the theory side, the cognitive science side, is that those little comparisons take time. Each one you have to go and compare, in, and, and you can only do about maybe three of those per second. And what designers have figured out on their own is, you should plot the delta on those separately. You should have another little graph next to it that says, here's the, the profit when you're, or, or the comparison from last year, et cetera. And we knew that there was an advantage to that, but Christy set up a really cool study where she actually measured it. And she had people do simulated real world tasks with these little comparisons like, and we had to actually go to real world, to, to, to practitioners to find out what those are. What do you actually do with those dashboards? Is it, do you care about the, which months? Have the, we're better this year than last year? Do you care about the average amount that you're better this year than last year? Do you care, you know, do you care about that one month that's different? And so she actually simulated what, what happens in the real world to the best we could figure out and then measured and found that there's like a 10, 10x improvement by doing those deltas and, and explored whether that's true over different kinds of graphs. So that's one of those cases where it's nice to be able to say, if you use this technique, we theoretically can say it should be better, but actually quantitatively can say you were improving by this much. Yeah, which is amazing, right? And so how do you then, what does it look like from then? So you, you can now say, plot the delta if that's what you want people to see, and they're going to be able to see it 10 times faster. How do you go from that research finding to broad adoption and understanding of something like that? We, we rely on you. <laughs> Thank you for everything you do. We will put out academic papers, of course, and have the community vet it and look for confounds in our design and make sure we do our stats right, et cetera. But then the next step is to put out public-facing papers. And I, I was going to say, the we'll... way you just said that was much more accessible than the paper that yes, describes yes, it. <laughs> yes. And a lot of academics are doing a better job of at least putting out a good tweet or a blog post that is lay accessible, et cetera. And then a little bit, but we're, we're not always followed by many, by folks in the community that they're interested in that. So it's really helpful 
to have people like you that are able to amplify that information and to take it and to put it into a book or to put it into other blog posts, et cetera, and, and to do an additional level of translation because as, as yep. much as we do, we're often out of the context and we're not as good as putting it in terms and, ex and ex examples that folks that, that work with these communities uh, can do. And the other thing that we try to do is to try to write papers that are lay accessible. And I think we'll talk about this one a little later where we have a couple in the lab where we've tried to translate a lot more of the research findings into lay accessible language and practical terms, et cetera. Let's actually, I think that's a good segue to jump into one of those. Because I think one of the latest studies that you've put out with a number of co-authors is the science of visual data communication, what works. Can you tell us about the context around this paper? And then when you're ready for it, I have that master visual that I can yeah, perhaps sure. go through as well. So this is a collaborative project with some of my favorite people in this literature. We have Elise Padilla, who was a, a former postdoc in the lab, and she's now a professor at Merced. Jessica Holman, who's a, a computer science professor here. Jeff Sox, who's at University of Washington, and Preeti Shah, who's at Michigan. And together, they cover the literatures academically on reasoning, and then education and graph comprehension, and then uncertainty visualization, and the computer science side. So they really were a, a dream team to be able to work with to cover the research side. And the challenge that journal gave us, that journal is intended for, for lay accessible reviews of the scientific literature. And they said, do one of those for visual data communication. I, I can highly recommend this journal in general, by the way, for any psych topic where you're interested in. If you want to know, do, do video games uh, make kids more violent? Or does that brain training app actually work? This is the journal that y'all should go to, to find out they pick some of the experts in the scientific literature and then force them to really chuck the jargon and distill things down to not, not dumb down the science, keep everything at a, at a high level, but make sure that the writing is clear and the jargon is gone. And so I highly recommend that outlet. And say the name of the journal is. again for us, Steve. Psychological Science in the Public Interest. If you Google that, it'll come up. And we got together this team and put together a paper that I think reviews uh, something close to the state of the art of visualization research, at least for the communication side of visualizations. We don't go as much into visual analytics and more complex visualizations that experts would use, but for public communication, um, the type of thing you'd see in PowerPoints or in uh, data journalism or in classrooms, mm -hmm. the, I think this is a solid review of the research literature. And how many studies does it pull together or pull from? Do you know? <laughs> well, the reference list must be 150 studies. Yeah. I know there's 30 figures and it's probably 30,000 words. It's a longer article, but yeah. I think it's it's at least hopefully excessively written. Should we pull up the image? Do you yeah, want to please. talk I think through? I think it's, it's a nice way to get a comprehensive overview, right? And, and then yeah. potentially dig deeper. And for those who are listening and who aren't going to be able to see what we're talking through, we'll try to make sure that we're doing it with enough description so that that makes sense. And I'll also make sure that we link to everything in yeah. the show notes. So Steve, this is, there's a lot going on in this document. <laughs> I just want to give people sort of the full sense of it, and then we'll zoom in. How do you want to do this? Do you want to actually just talk through? Because I think we'll have questions as you go through some of these specific findings. And these findings, I don't think in a large part, some of it's anecdotally, it makes sense. But to have evidence behind some of this stuff is amazing. And I think can really drive how people think about visualization. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I wanted to be able to summarize a lot of what we covered in the paper on something you could sort of hang on your wall or have accessible. And this figure is supposed to show four primary findings from this literature that are really of practical relevance. 
And uh, there's, I, I'm obsessed with 2D organizations. Whenever I have a paper, I try to lay out the main ideas in two dimensions. And the dimensions here are, there's those four or so columns that make four different points. And then the rows are going to be different ways of encoding data. So let's start with the first column, I think, because that this is going to be one that's familiar to people. When you show data to people, you typically use a certain visual channel, like position in a dot plot or the length of a step in a Gantt chart or the 2D size of a bubble in a map or the, the color value of in a heat map. And so that's what these rows are in the whole chart. Then they're organized by the highest precision ways of getting data across to people down to the lowest precision ways. And I think this is something that a lot of data visualization practitioner guides cover. If you want to get your data across with some decimal points on it, then you should use a bar graph or a scatter plot or a, or a dot plot because you're able to see many different values there. But as you scroll down and you get down to something like a, a heat map, now your eye can only really tell the difference between maybe three or four values in a heat map. Uh, if you're just using uh, values of gray or a red saturation, et cetera, you're getting a much coarser view of what's happening in the data. So this whole sheet is organized around those. The first column on the left just makes this point. And by the way, this document is, if you go to my, my Twitter page, it's linked, it's pinned up there on the top. You can grab a PDF of this if you want. The, the first column is just making this point and saying, hey, go and tell me what's the ratio between these two values that I'm showing you. And you can tell at the beginning, you're really good at it. And by the time you get down to color on the bottom, you're bad at it. So it's just make, giving a reminder of that point. The second column is giving a bunch of, uh, of, of illusions or caveats that you have to worry about when you're plotting data, particularly with that channel. And I think these are going to be a little to take a little longer to get across. But briefly, the top one is worrying about you know, what's the scale on your y-axis. If you start the scale at 98 and the top is 99 and you show two bars, you know that you have to watch out because it looks like A and B have a 50% ratio there but they actually have something like a 1% ratio. And so that's just a reminder of that worry. And we've done some work showing that illusion is actually quite pervasive. And even if you tell people, hey, look, there's 98. Look, you have to keep this in mind. They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the ratio? 50%. And they really forget because there's something in the visual system that's really screaming that ratio and it's hard to ignore. That second image with the stack bar is just reminding you that as you're moving down this list of visual channels from position even to 1D length, you're starting to lose visual precision. So those black bars on the left, you have position coding for them. And you can tell that the last one is bigger, the one on the bottom. But the gray bars have the same differences among them. And it's hard to see the difference there because you can no longer use the position of the start or the end of the bar. But instead, you have to use the one-dimensional length. And that makes it harder. The next one with the circles. This is an example that if you use two-dimensional size, if, if you use 2D area or bubbles to show data, make sure you map the data to the 2D size of the bubble because that's what people assume. If you use the diameter of the bubble, then every time you increase the bubble by a, a unit, you are increasing the area by a square of that unit, and this can cause huge illusions. This always makes me fearful of bubble graphs because you yeah. never know, or it takes some time to figure out if things were scaled correctly. Absolutely. It makes like an order of magnitude difference, which one right. it is. It's a really big deal. There's uh, an illusion that you run into with line graphs, where if you try to see the delta within a line graph, you've got a line and then another line. If you try to compute this, the difference between them, there's an illusion that comes up where 
on the left side, if you look at those two Z shapes, the difference between those is the same across the whole X axis. I made a Z shape, I copied and pasted it a little higher, but it looks like in the gray bits, the delta between those is big, uh, excuse me, the light gray bits, and then yeah. the dark gray bits, it looks like a small delta, but the delta is actually the same across that's all amazing, of those. That's really, amazing, um, because it really is misleading. Yeah, and that's another place where you, if you wanted to actually look at data like that, whenever you find yourself looking for deltas in a line graph, you want to make sure to just explicitly plot the subtraction. And in many scientific fields, and even in business dashboards, people will often. And then on the bottom, you can see, uh, be careful of plotting intensities on intensities. There's just a classic visual illusion there, where if you plot colors on colors, et cetera, you get illusions that in the end share sort of DNA with the dress, et cetera. They share the same kinds of visual complexities that cause your visual system to see different things depending on context. And so that can be a little bit dangerous. And then uh, I think, so I think these are all things that have appeared in a lot of visualization practitioner guides. I think this serves, serves as a good summary and perhaps uh, showing the actual basic research that motivates them. But I think there's some, something new in these last couple columns that doesn't come across as much. This column shows that your visual system is really good at pulling statistics from the visual world. You can look at the image, the wall behind me, you can say there's some wooden table, but the shelf and the wall and the whiteboard are all white. And uh, you, you can tell that if you look behind me, how many objects are there on my bookshelf? You could say, oh, about a dozen. You're really good at pulling stats from your environment. And you're also good at that for data visualization. You can look at that cloud and that dot plot, and you can ask you to point, where's the middle of the cloud? You'll get it. Where's the highest one? You've got it. Where's the lowest one? You've got it. Same for the stack bar. What's the average size and bar? And so then where's actually, the Steve, bar? back on that dot plot, yeah. that seems to me like an argument for plot all the points versus the summary statistics. Or ask yourself if you should do because yeah. of the additional context we get from that. Absolutely. I totally agree, Cole. It, actually, in some of the papers on this, we literally have an, an example of how if you just take a plot and you try to plot all the summary statistics, it gets chaotic. You've got error bars and then you've got the quintiles and the quantiles, et cetera. And it's not intuitive. People have to understand what these statistical parameters that you're plotting mean. Right. And it can be much more intuitive just to show the data and the visual system can handle it and it can give you these intuitive statistics. I mean, yeah, this is the amazing. really the spirit behind, if you've seen 538's depiction of the odds for the last election, it was the, the blue party over here and the red party over here. And it was just a bunch of bubbles. And if you remember this one, right, there was a line and then they gave a probability, but they're like, hey, in these 80% of these little bubbles, these, I don't know how many, they, they probably plotted uh, 40 of them. Uh, no, eight, they did actually 80 bubbles and then 20 bubbles to show you the 80-20 chance, but they're actually showing that because it gives you an intuitive, yeah. visceral sense of those statistics and the uncertainty around the election in a way that no bar graph could ever do. And it's a, it has that, you're, I love that you're pulling that out, that it has that vibe as well. It's intuitive and conceptually. Yeah. And then same deal for the stack bar, same deal for the bubble. You can look at these shapes and you can say biggest value, smallest value, average value really quickly. So your visual system's great at that. And that's an argument for doing exactly what Cole just suggested. And that is show your data and you don't always have to plot the stats because people can be really good at pulling them out. Yep. But the last column, this is what people are bad at. This is what people are bad at. And that is comparisons. There are so many potential comparisons that you can make in the world. The objects on my shelf, that thing is higher than that thing, and that thing is bigger than this thing, and that thing is to the left of that thing, and this thing. How many of these little sentences could I make? It's practically infinite. And your visual system faces that choice all the time about what two things you should be comparing at any moment. 
So when you're looking at this graph on top, you're saying, well, that lollipop is shorter than that one. And that one's bigger than that one. And you get tops three or four of those comparisons per second. And it, if you want people to be able to do that quickly, now you have to help them out. And these are exactly the kinds of techniques that folks like Cole will suggest where on that top graph, if you want people to be able to see the quickly, those deltas, those comparisons, then explicitly plot them like we're showing on the right. This is like that research that I mentioned earlier about the efficiency of plotting deltas where you're going to get that 10 X improvement. Or, show people what you want them to see, right? Yeah, show people. Leave the context. You can keep the other values there so they know where you got them from, but also yeah. show them that part that you want them to see. Well, because the other danger you talk about, I can make all these different observations and you will make one set of those observations in one particular order. Somebody else looking at it will make maybe the same set of observations, but probably not in the same order. And yeah, so yeah, when you yeah. know where you want someone to look, yeah, yeah I just want to reinforce that point. Absolutely. This is the storytelling point that you often make. So that on the yeah. right half of your screen right now, where it says, Hey, look, A, C, and E have increased and you bold those and you highlight them and you say, Hey, I think you trust me. Uh, we're, we're buddies and I have, I'm not pulling a, I'm not uh, pulling a fast one here. You look at this and you can see that these are the values that have increased. And that's what in your five second grant glance at this visualization, you should focus on. You have to have a little bit of trust to be able to do that. But if you do, this is a much more effective way of getting the critical data pattern across because otherwise you assume that people see what you see and they don't, they're making some other comparison. They're wandering so off somewhere else. And it is a, a kindness to show people what the world looks like through your glasses when yes. you're looking at your own data visualization. And the ones on the bottom, these are kind of making the same point, but for other kinds of graphs. There's a so, little bit about colorblindness down there on the bottom, just saying, watch out for red, red and green, use red and blue instead. I like that it's talking about colors and it's printed in black and white. <laughs> One uh, difficulty of academic papers, huh? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that you just said stood out to me because you talked about when you know the data, you, you know somewhere you want people to look, let them trust you, show them where to look. We sometimes get pushed back on that when we're talking about this aspect of storytelling or focusing attention of the feeling that's somehow trying to mislead or that there's malintent there. And certainly that can happen. And we have to be uh, thoughtful about being truthful to the data and not just pushing an agenda. But I think there's this understanding that when you know the data, you actually know it better than anyone else probably. And so I'm always trying to reinforce with people that it's actually, it's your job then to be directing people where to look. But at the same time, we often think that it's going to be obvious to others because we've spent so much time, usually by the point of communicating to get familiar with the data that it is obvious to us, but we have to take intentional steps with someone else. And this gets to one of the other topics that I know comes up in that paper, which is that curse of knowledge. Do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I have to deal with all the time. So especially when starting to teaching PhD students, these are people being trained as scientists and they are trained that they're not supposed to be biased. They're not supposed to editorialize. They're supposed to be honest and objective. And then they get up to give the presentation and they say, here's my question. And then they go on and show the graph and they show the graph and they show, you don't even know what the conclusion is until the very end, because that's an honest depiction of what, what their life was like for the last six months. And I have to sit them down and say, your audience can't handle that. You need to editorialize. You need to say, I have I analyzed these data to the best of my ability. And here's what you should see in each plot. 
And here's what I think you should conclude from that. And I think that's really similar to what an analyst in an organization has to Absolutely. Do, where they're trusted by their colleagues, hopefully, and they're the expert. And exactly as you said, where they have to be the one that is showing other people what they should see and even suggesting how they should think about something, accept the pushback, have the data ready, et cetera. Um, right. And certainly there's a line where you get to more, maybe more of a sales context where you might worry about that, but completely agree. That's not being dishonest. That's being, that's kindness. Well, in the original scenario you described, the logic there is flawed a little bit as well, because there is no such thing as unbiased data. Even if you're just showing graph after graph after graph, you chose what data to show in the first place and bias yeah. comes into yeah. that. And it's it not a negative thing. You know, your, yeah, right. what your measure was in the first place. Yeah, it just goes yeah. all the way back. Yeah. So I have this discussion, a similar discussion with PhD students that you likely have with folks in organizations all the time. Yeah. Ah, the sweet sound of grinding coffee. That lovely hiss of steaming milk. This is the perfect way to start your day. Are you ready to caffeinate like the Storytelling with Data team? Well, now you can. We are excited to announce the launch of the Storytelling with Data online shop, where we are offering our exclusive SWD mug featuring those cool graphs and images from Let's Practice. We're also pleased to share with you our signature coffee blend, Cole's favorite, roasted exclusively for Storytelling with Data and now available to you. Let us help start your day in DataViz style with a mug and coffee from Storytelling with Data. Visit storytellingwithdata.com slash shop. And as a special offer for podcast listeners, use the code podcast10 to receive 10% off your purchase. That's storytellingwithdata.com slash shop. Get your mug today and let's caffeinate. Does it make sense to show this? Sure. So one of the issues that you run into with either that business analyst or that PhD student or anybody is... Well, but I don't need to editorialize. I don't need to show people what's in my data. I don't need to guide them by the nose because look, it's right there. And we wanted to show in the lab that no, it's not right there. It's right there for you, but it's not right there for other people. So this is a, one of my favorite experiments ever. This was done by a very talented PhD student, Cindy Schoen, who is now a professor at Amherst. And what she did is she wanted to simulate becoming an expert in a data set and then thinking that other people would see what you see in the lab. So just look at the top the top half of the display for the moment. Just look at the upper left. See how we have four political parties in this fake European country. Look at those deliciously European names, Alliance Party, etc. Labor Party. This is uh, polling data. And you can see that there's four lines, but you know what? Who cares about those bottom two lines? Only the top two matter. Those are the, clearly one of those two is going to win. So just look at the top two. Those two candidates had a debate and there's a green line and a blue line. You can see how in the first annotated box, those lines come together. You know what happened there? They had a debate and the green person couldn't answer a question and they just, they looked bad and, and they accidentally insulted the spouse of the blue person. Doesn't look cool. People, so that affected their polling numbers. Time went on. People got sick of that scandal. And then in the next debate, right where those lines diverge again, the blue party member couldn't answer a question, gave a terrible answer, tried to bring up that stale old insult that just made them look super weak. So their fortunes diverged. Okay. I just made you an expert in these data in 30 seconds. Now, oops, wrong experiment. Why am I telling you this story? Forget everything I told you. I'm going to grab somebody from out in the hallway and I'm going to show them the, a version of this graph where all four lines are in full color. Those annotated boxes are gone and they don't know the story. What are they going to think is important in this graph? What are they going to notice first? If I gave them a pen and I asked them to circle the most important parts or most you know salient parts of these data, what would they do? 
And in the upper right, in the red, you could see this is what people circle in that condition. So most people really focused on those top two lines. I claim that this is a curse of expertise where you are just saying they focus on the top two lines because you told them that story and they can't shut it off. You might say though, well, they're right. I mean, the top two lines are most important. Okay. Well, the bottom two examples are now same people. You flip a coin when you go in the lab and on the lower left one, now you tell them the same story, but it's about the bottom two lines. Hey, in this country, the party that comes in third gets special funding and gets into the next round of the election. So who cares about one and two? They're going to, they're going to win. Then you tell exactly the same story about those two lines. Now look what people claim others naive to that story are going to annotate and find salient on that graph on the lower right. People think that others are going to see what they see. So coming back to presentations and data visualization, complicated graph up on the screen or on that handout and you're like, see, and yeah, you see, but humans are terrible at putting them themselves in the shoes of other people and imagining what others will see. And so do those guidance steps that Nicole talks about. Actually, you know, paint, highlight, annotate, gesture, language, show people what you see. Don't just yeah. assume they will. Well, and let's get more specific than that, right? Because we have another paper that we can talk a little bit about that gives very explicit guidance on exactly what to do, which is declutter and focus. Do you want to talk a little bit about the work that we did there? Yeah. So some discussions with Cole inspired this work where uh, a lot of this literature suggests that we should be minimalist in our visualizations, number one, and get rid of those extra grid lines and the extra color palette, et cetera. And that we should also focus, but then that's going to be highlight certain values, give a clear title, link the color of the title to the values, give good annotations, yeah. things that get rid of that curse of expertise. Yeah. And it, in theory, these both should be these things that, that add a lot to the visualization. But we wanted to do our research thing and actually uh, A-B test this. And so we brought in undergrads to the lab and Cole set up six visualizations, I believe, and then had a original cluttered version. Uh, of, of each one and then a decluttered version of each one so it's much more minimalist perfect there they are in the second column and then you can see i was moving my hand like this because i was imagining exactly that figure yep. and then in the last column we've got the decluttered versions but now you're adding that focus you're giving a clear headline you're linking it with color and annotation etc and we wanted to know what cognitive and aesthetic benefits these uh design choices would convey and so the quick story of the results is that from cluttered to decluttered, aesthetic benefits. People found the, the decluttered ones more professional. So you'd follow that advice and you're going to look like you know what you're doing. That is, it makes sense, right? The, you can look at that first column and it's very Excel 2005. The middle column looks a lot more like something you'd see on 538 or New York Times Upshot or these well-designed data visualization websites. We didn't really have any cognitive benefits that we could measure, though. Though I remember getting some unexpected feedback from survey participants at the original point where we're doing some testing to try to figure out if the study design was working well, which yep. some of the feedback was that the original graphs, that someone had made them worse than they could be, that no presentation would ever include something like this in a business setting where yeah, yeah. I found interesting, right, because we work with many clients across all sorts of places. And it's not uncommon to see graphs that look like this. But then we originally, I recall, saw some dips in unexpected places in going from cluttered to decluttered that I think were maybe people had felt like things had been taken away from them or details had somehow been left out. And I thought that was a really interesting 
insight that came out of a lot of this. Yeah. Because yeah. for me, what that said is don't just declutter. You also have to take this next step to focus attention, right? Show people to where to look, show them what to see. Because we had seen that with clients where oftentimes they'll start by decluttering because it's the lowest hanging fruit. It's the easiest if it's the sort of, um, doesn't change things a ton, but, yeah. Yeah. and then, but finding that there's pushback. And I yeah. think that's the pushback is that when you take things away and don't add something else of value in that place that that feels like a, a loss. Yeah. I think from all the data we have, I think it's perfectly consistent with, with the suggestion. I completely agree that it looks a little minimalist in the middle and, and I'd rather have that compared to the first column, but it you really, the, the clear important step is to add that focus and to help people see what they see, get yeah. beyond that cursive expertise where you think that other people will see what you see and actually help them make the same comparisons and notice the same values that you notice. So completely agree. Absolutely. It's interesting because I remember also this, I referred to a little bit earlier, we got pushback originally on some of this because it didn't, I think it wasn't novel enough maybe for some of the committees that were reviewing it. Do you recall? Some of the pushback was, uh, so a lot of people have studied the the declutter step under the guise of chart junk. So Edward Edward Tufte famously talks about data to ink ratios and things like that, which is a metric that People have had trouble figuring out what that means in the first place, but and saying that there's never, ever a reason to have any clutter or images or no fun, can't have any fun. And that is not something that I would agree with. And in this paper, we review a lot of that literature and it's tough. To, there are places where the grid lines can be helpful, clearly, but there's also places where they're just clutter. And I think in the research literature, <laughs> some line at the end of it says something like, the research literature, there's so many possible tasks and so many dis- definitions of clutter, et cetera, that for the research, research literature it, uh, alone, we don't see a good path forward to keep studying this question. Basically, what we say is like, trust Cole. <laughs> like, that's like, what, like, trust like good designers who make good it things. And sense, people that have right? more experience in that real world. That's yep. effectively what we said is just trust good practitioners who had a lot of experience because this is not a question where we're ever going to be able to decontextualize clutter and find uh, petri dish versions of it that we could test in lab with just the right people who would have seen it and it's just it, it's not going to be a, a, an addressable research question well, as opposed clutter to is in the eye of the beholder as some of it and it and depends yeah. on what task you're doing it's like if you really care about finding out if there's that a 90 or a 91 then a grid line might be helpful but in right. most other situations it's not and so should we continue to test that eh, probably not well, and I think the punch that we didn't get to because I jumped in and cut you off, but was when you go from that second column to the third, from the decluttered to the focused and annotated is that there are actually benefits on memorability and recall. Yeah. Yeah. There was something like a 3X improvement on the ability of people to find the right message, focus on the right message and recall that later. And then we also had people draw the visualization later and you could yeah. tell just from coding of the drawings that people redrew that pattern. So really great evidence that that manipulation is going to cause your viewers to both see and remember the story that you as the presenter, hopefully as a trustworthy person, et cetera, is conveying to them. I love it. So much fun. And there are so many other questions I want you to research so we can talk more about that. So we've talked about some specific studies. I'd love to get more into the general again. What are some of the interesting things that are being researched right now? Who's going to doing good work? Where should people be looking for this? 
I think that folks listening to this would be interested in a lot of what's going on in uncertainty perception right now. How do you convey election probabilities? Uh, there's people like Jessica Holman and Matt Kay here at Northwestern and Lace Padilla at Merced who are showing that you should just show a bunch of objects, just show a bunch of possible worlds like in that 538 visualization. Or instead of showing the, the cone of uncertainty around the hurricane, just show many possible paths that hurricane could take. That's something that's hit the, the public communication circuit that folks might be familiar with with those. Another set of studies that is happening right now and just started being presented at the latest data visualization conference that I think your audience would be interested in is cool work from Cindy Schoen, who again is at Amherst now, where she's trying to figure out how do you set up the arrangement of a graph, even a simple bar graph, to get people to encourage them to make the right comparison. So even without that storytelling step, even without coloring things in different, saying, look at this, can you just set up a bar graph to get people to make certain comparisons? So here- You can, right? The distance between them and yeah. Exactly. So exactly yeah. what you're suspecting. So like, do you set it up like this or do you set it up like this? Or do you set it up like this, like in a small multiples or trellis yeah. kind of view? And she's done this cool study where you just give those crowd workers, you say, oh, these really have labels, right? This is company A, company B, product A, you know, as not just A and B, right? It has like cars and trucks or something. And you ask people what they see. And if you set up the same data like this, they're more likely to say, uh, to compare these two or to compare within these two. If you set it up like this, then they're more likely to compare these two or these two. I gotta get my finger wackle right. Or here, you get more of a two for one special where it's more in the middle. And of course, the displays get more complicated than that. That's the simplified version. But I think that research program is on a path for being able to come up with some really specific concrete design rules for the storytelling step is important, but even before that, you can start to nudge people towards making the right comparisons just the, in the way that you lay out your displays. And, well, and even tools can work on, like Excel or Tableau could build yeah. these in. And that will be so interesting for the cases where you need to show the data, but you're not in a position to lead people through. You want them to self-serve, but to be able to still direct them to do yeah. useful things. Yeah, yeah, I like that. What role does funding play in this sort of research? Does it play a role? It's important. Uh, for anything we want to do, we need people. We need postdoctoral researchers. We need grad students. We need lab managers. We have to pay participants. So our lab has been lucky that the National Science Foundation has found our work interesting frequently in the last 10 years, particularly after we got involved in data visualization, because we're one of the relatively fewer labs that's working on the psychology side and the cognitive science side. And so I think we have some unique unique value to add there. Also in experimental methods, your average computer scientist doesn't always run experiments. So I think we've been able to come up with some great collaborations and NSF has funded a bunch of our work in the last several years. So it mostly pays for personnel, pays for all these really smart people that have to do all this hard work of talking to people in the real world and finding out what the interesting questions are, yep. turning it into something you can measure in this little Petri dish in the lab, running it, run, wind up running it six times to get it right writing it up, et cetera. So I've mostly pays for personnel in the end. And it's great because we get to train scientists along the way. And then does the funding actually impact what direction you go with the research or those two things tend to not go hand in hand? Luckily, no, it hasn't, it hasn't had to, particularly for the National Science Foundation. We would have similar taste in what we think is interesting. They have a translational real world focus. You have to be theoretically interesting in what you do can't just be solving one little problem. When you solve that, you have to be able to pull some lessons from it and apply it in that good science manner to other problems in the world. But they are also interested in things that have that like five-year level of impact where you're, show, you're doing something that, that could help others right away. 
And they also love outreach, so it, which we do a lot, where, where we make sure that we publish guides like this for practitioners and we communicate with folks like you to make sure that the work that we do gets out there to the world. For those who are looking to understand more about research that's being done in this space, where would you point them? So Visual Thinking Lab, obviously, to your yeah. co-authors on some of these papers, but who's doing good work? Who, who should folks know about generally? Oh, there's so many. Holy cow. Uh, I think if you were a listener of this and you wanted to get a sense of what's going on, in especially the communication sphere, reading that Perspectives in Psychological Science in the Public Interest paper, if you get through all 30,000 words of that, and then you still so want to know start. more, call me because you, you have done, you've done some good work. <laughs> that, that's, that's a good amount. I think that's a good summary of a lot of what's going on there. And in that one, we review the perceptual side, but also how do you make sure that your visualizations are understandable to other people? And there's great people in the education world that are doing that. And how do you show uncertainty and how do you show risk? If you're a doctor and you want to show somebody that taking this treatment will have the following probabilities on your outcomes and you speak in probabilities, just like with election results, that's tough to convey to people. So they figured out great ways of showing risk so that patients can make their own decisions because a doctor doesn't want to make the decision for you. They want you to be as informed as possible so that you make your own decision. So there's great literatures on that as well that we review in that paper. Great. There was a question that came in from someone who's watching us chat, asking for recommendations on, I think, reading specifically, but it says, uh, Javier says, my go-to book for understanding visualization is Rudolf Armheim's classic visual thinking. Can you recommend other work that deepens the understanding of the mechanisms of our vision? Oh, yes. I, mean, I can recommend. Colin Ware, uh, any of his um, If you books, want to know more just think? about vision and visual thinking in general, I would recommend my uh, former postdoc advisor, James Enns, E-N-N-S, has a great book called The Thinking Eye, The Seeing Brain. And it's something that, that a lot of good. folks will use for undergraduate advanced uh, classes on visual thinking in general. And he'll go through illusions and the difficulty of comparison and the gorilla experiment. It'll talk a lot about not just data visual, maybe a little bit on graphs and data visualization, but it'll talk more about the visual system in a really engaging way. I love that book. Great recommendation. Okay. Here's another question that comes in that I, I just scanned and it, there's uh I'll just put it to you. From experience, usually a lot of time is spent on data extraction, cleaning, manipulation, and analysis. The visualization bit is often left to the last minute, especially in an agile way of working in sprints, which is a shame because it's a great tool to convey the insights. In your experience working with practitioners, what is the proportion of time need to be spent on designing and producing visuals? Any tips to ensure that visual designs and delivery don't take a backseat? Ooh, I mean, I think Cole's a better person to answer this question, but I, I completely agree with, I'll, I'll say a little bit and then defer to Cole. I'll I agree with it that the majority is spent on cleaning and then the red, then the next majority is spent on actual analysis and staring and slicing up your data in different ways. Well, here's the distribution, but what if we split it by this? What if we pair that? metric with this other one in a scatter plot. What about this other scatter plot, et cetera, and going through and deciding what you want to do. And then the next stage after that is, all right, I want to show the following five patterns, but in this order, and now which chart do I choose? What's the best kind of graph? And then I want to do my storytelling on that graph, et cetera. Now, what is the proper proportion of these time uh, of these that requires me to have a, an in-context knowledge of what industry you're in. And I probably don't know that industry as well. So I will defer to Cole on the rest of that. 
So I, I'll give a very succinct answer to this one, which is it always takes more time than you think it will. Right. And to find ways to carve out time for this part of the process, because as we've seen through a lot of what Steve has talked about here, there are measurable benefits in getting information across more effectively when you do these things. And to do it well takes some time and takes some thought. And to Steve's point, it takes trying out different things and evaluating and so carve out time for this part of the process and you will excel as a result of that. And one more thing just to add on to that, keep in mind that cursive expertise. So when you get to that last step and you want to design your data in a way that other people understand, you cannot just do that at 11 p.m. that night before your presentation because it's just your brain. Unless you want to wake your kids up or something like that, maybe you can use their brains, but you have to get other people's brains to get feedback to find out what they see. So you need a bit of a cycle of critique when I give a conference presentation, okay, once in a while, I got to write it on the plane like y'all do, but I try to book a lab meeting with my lab a week before, and I give the, the presentation full of visualizations that I would have given at the conference. And by the time they're done with it, they've shredded me and I, I need to do two more drafts after that. And having that. And you've left yourself involved. time to do so. Yeah. So pre-book it because you'll never do it unless you pre-book. So that's what I do. I pre-book a lab meeting and I do it two months in advance when of course it'll be easy. I'll have it done by then. And and to have that time pre-booked to give yourself the pressure of having that critique cycle, highly recommended. Fantastic. I know we're just about out of time, but I want to take a moment to talk about the future. What do you have coming up next? Where is your focus going to be? One of the reasons I initially got involved in data visualization is I'm interested in science communication and getting people in the world to be more rational overall. And I got involved in data visualization to find better ways of conveying science and data to people. And as I continue to watch you know, people not get vaccinated and, and people not understand climate change, et cetera, I, I, I know that there's more to it than that, that we need to export more rationality to the world. And so we are now expanding our lab's purview to how do you teach people to think better with data, not just visualize data better, but how do you get people to understand things like you can't trust an anecdote if you've got that one person in your life who took that medication and still got sick, et cetera, that's not a way that you should make your own decisions. Uh, that is one anecdotal little story and stories are so powerful for human brains, yes. but you got to take a look back and look at an unbiased data set to know whether that medication is for you, et cetera. Uh, so we're more expanding to reasoning with data and of course, using visualizations and clear conveying of those data patterns in that, but expanding to, to thinking about data in general. I'm so excited for what's going to come out of that. So I want to keep up with that. Steve, this has been fantastic. Where can people follow your work? And I should say actually before that, that we will link to all of the different papers and resources and names that have come up in the show notes. Where's the best place for people to find you? I think the quick Twitter account is the best place because if we have a finding uh, or a review paper that folks in the world might be interested in outside of the academic review audience, we'll be sure to put it on there. So if you pop to that Twitter page, you'll find as the, the pin tweet, you'll see that long, that review paper on the science of visual data communication and the figure that Cole put up along with a bunch of other studies that we thought that folks in the world would be interested in. And if you want to know more, there's a lab webpage that has all of our publications accessible. So if you want to geek out on the, the actual studies themselves, it should all be there. And Steve's Twitter is at Steve Frankenary. We'll link to that as well. Steve, any final thoughts to share with those watching and listening today? 
thanks to you for inspiring that study. And uh, if other people have other studies that you, you run into a problem in your organization, your workplace, your research lab, whatever it is all the time, and it's something on data communication or reasoning about data, Twitter's a good place to ask. Just pop something in and say, hey, Steve, is there any work on this? And I'd be happy to say yes, no. And if it's something that could use some work, then we consider it because we're always looking for ideas and we're looking for important problems in the world. And y'all know what those are. Steve, it's been a pleasure. The hour has flown by. I knew it would. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Cole. This was great fun. And for those watching and listening, thanks very much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. <laughs>